The Science Inside Podcast. The Science Inside. Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power FM 88.1. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alma Schutz and I'm with you as every single Monday night. We'd love on this show to just talk science, see what's happening in the news and really explain to you what happens behind the scenes. And today on the show, of course, we have a mix of all kinds of things, but we started off with our main story, which looks very closely at the spike in cash in transit heists. You may have noticed this, you may have seen on your Facebook or your Twitter, one of the... One after the other. It, they are just popping up all over the place, especially in Gauteng. And it's been quite scary. And there are a lot of question, uh, questions about who are the possible perpetrators? Why is there this sudden rise, particularly in this relatively specialized criminal activity? And of course, because we are a science show, we want to find out if science has some of the answers in resolving or combating this crime. So cash in transit heists or Often they are called CIT crimes, as you might know, occur when guys are robbed while carrying cash from the vans to a business or vice versa, or sometimes while these heavy vehicles are transporting the cash and are moving. There's a lot of extreme violence involved. There's usually armed force. And recently, as we know, there has been quite a lot of use of explosives also. According to reports, it is said on average one cash and transit heist occurs a day in South Africa. That's quite a lot, you do have to admit. And during the first half of this year alone, a count of 140 cash and transit robberies have occurred in comparison to 129 heists recorded in the same period last year. However, the highest number of CIT heists ever recorded here was in 2006, where a total of 460 heists were carried out. So if you've been listening to those numbers, we're, we're you know, catching up with those 2006 numbers that high quite quickly already, considering that we are in June. The most recent onslaught, as you might know, was last week, Monday, when a G4S cash solution van was exploded. And some people are saying, you know, this is an attack on business. It's believed to be, um, you know, sparked by an annual increase in cash circulation in the system. And, uh, you know, it has increased, so that does make a little bit of sense. But still, it is a serious thing. And even though there are a lot of procedural and political things around this, there's also some science. Some science around how these vehicles are built, how... um, why this has increased and the technology that's used by both the criminals and the investigators. So we will look into some of those questions later on in our main story for the show. After that, if you're familiar with the show, you'll know exactly that unscience is a little part where we look at some research that will just boggle your mind, that scientists have spent some time looking at this particular thing. Today, we ask the question in Unscience, are men more likely to avoid the pedestrian crossing and jaywalk? So if you're one of those people who just runs across the street, doesn't look left or right, this might be for you. And then later in the show, we are looking at lying. This, of course, is slightly in in context with our first big story. But specifically, we are looking at polygraph testing. I know you've seen it in the movies. It's usually called lie detection um, in the movies or in books. And somebody asks a lot of questions. The person is sweating and then we know that they're guilty. Well, turns out it's not that simple. Is it really true or is it all a scam? We will find out later in the show. And before we get into all of that, uh, we're going to just wrap up some some nice science news for you. So that's what we'll start with. All of that, we would love to know your feedback on chat us. Tell us what you think. Especially, I'd love to know whether you think polygraph testing is real or not. Do you trust it? Have you ever undergone a polygraph test? I would love to know. The place to tell us is either either Facebook or Twitter. We are VowFM on both of those. Just make sure you use the hashtag science inside. And then if you miss any part of the show, it's not a problem because the podcast is up on iTunes as the science inside. And 
Here's the website, fits.journalism.coza forward slash science, which is nice and easy. Also, if you want to send us a voice note with your experiences, the WhatsApp line is 0840784912, as always. But let's get into the show. Let's get into some science with the news. This week's Science Headline. As always, I'm joined by my producer, Bridget Lepeha, to tell me some of what's happening in the world of scientific research and science news. What do you have for us today? Hi, Elna. Well, my story today is on natural gas. Um, It is said to be another culprit in causing greenhouse emissions. We have always been told that natural gas is a clean alternative to other fossil fuels, but it turns out that natural gas is not as clean after all. It turns out that its main ingredient, the potent greenhouse gas methane, has been leaking from oil and gas facilities as 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 far high, at higher rates than governmental regulators had claimed before. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So that's quite serious. Yeah. So natural gas in its unprocessed form is actually a mixture of naturally occurring flammable gases. The mix varies from source to source, but in its chief ingredients include methane, butane and propane. And like coal and oil, natural gas can form deep underground and it forms when remains of ancient plants and animal decay under the intense heat and pressure created by the layers of sand, silt, rock and uh, water above. Okay. And over time, the geologic pressure cooker causes the decaying materials, carbon atoms uh, breakdown, forming thermogenic natural gas. Okay, so I understand what you're saying. I'm just a little bit surprised that this has been overlooked before. What exactly is the cause? Well, a new study in the United States found that such leaks have nearly doubled the climate impact of natural gas, causing warming, which is on par to carbon dioxide oxide uh, emitting coal plants for two decades now and while methane does not stay in the atmosphere as long as co2 does its warming effects are much stronger oh that's of course quite tricky yeah even if it does it does dissipate after a while if it has that effect that's very serious for us is there anything else of interest that the study brought forth well the head scientist for environmental defense fund EDF, Steve Hamburg, who conducted the study, he stresses that the natural gas is undermined by the leaks because when it is burned, it emits less carbon dioxide than coal when burned. And the analysis also suggests that U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is presenting a very distorted image of the emission of natural gas by methane industries, understating that they leak approximately 60% of greenhouse gases. Wow. I mean, it's not like we're not already causing enough greenhouse gases. Now there's a leak. Yeah. How exactly did they make this discovery? I'm sure people weren't willing to just tell them. Of course not. Hamburg and his EDF colleagues recruited about two dozen government, university and non-profit scientists to go about and set on foot to measure methane levels in the air around natural gas wells, storage tanks, refineries and underground pipes feeding gas to people's homes in key gas producing regions in various states. Mm. So map out for us a little bit. What are the dangers here really of this? Well, they did not go so much into what the dangers really are, but another environmental scientist at Stanford University in California, Rob Jackson, says this expands on previous studies confirming earlier findings findings that methane leaks are really underestimated. He stated that uh, the new study probably still understates leakage because it didn't really look closely at emissions where the gas is being consumed but it only compared where it was being produced. And the closer they looked at this in studies the more they found that emissions were being were, were higher. So it might even be even worse yeah, than this. Than they actually think. Well, you see, these kind of studies, you can't just ignore them and say, oh, it's just another paper in another journal. What are they going to do with this information? 
You are right, Elna. The new findings come as the administration of U.S. President Donald Trump has been working on rolling back regulations from former President Barack Obama, who had meant to force gas and oil industries to cut on methane leaks. And in another case, an EPA, or they call it an um, Environmental Protection Agency, which I mentioned previously, attempted to suspend its own tougher rules on methane leaks, which was rejected by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit last year. And the results in the study could play into regulatory fights, making it harder for federal regulators to justify easing methane controls. Um, methane leak controls and apparently EDF is suing to block a a reversal of the methane rules in an attempt to duck accounting for methane emissions leaked in the production and distribution processes. Hmm. I mean it's good that we have the study but I'm very uh, concerned as you mentioned about what happens once this gets handed over into regulation into politics even if you have the studies, things can still not be adjusted as they should be. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. So, uh, but in my story today for our news comes from researchers at the Technical University of Munich via Science Daily. And this one's about microelectrodes and a new discovery on how to use them. So it's a tiny little bit of metal that you can imagine. It picks up on electrical signals or changes in voltage in the brain or, or your heart or your muscle cells anything like that so it's some it's a little bit of metal that they put into your body as a sensor that sounds very helpful for medicine mm, yeah unfortunately it would be helpful if they could get it to work right so these microelectrode arrays have been around for quite a while but usually they're printed on something hard like silicone And the problem there is that this hardness interferes with the cells, affecting uh, affecting them or either reorganizing them. Also, if you put that into a body, your body does not like it. So these materials can actually start inflammations or even damage how your organs work. Sure, the body really does reject foreign things when they're injected in in there. So uh, you need something softer, right? Yes, exactly. And this Munich team has found something kind of unexpected and wonderful. Sweets. What? Candy? Yes. Yes. They have used a very fancy form of inkjet printing to put some microelectrodes on gummy bears. Can you believe it? And other chewy candy. So the printing is done with a carbon-based ink. That's obviously with metal sign. This comes from, it has a protective layer around it. And it's kind of brilliant because instead of having to shape those electrodes in a fancy lab from scratch, you can now print them. And what that means is they plan, print and adjust, plan, print and adjust and can get what they need quite, quite quickly in comparison. Oh, great. Well, I'd rather swallow a yummy gummy bear than some strange silicone. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, they did try all kinds of things, but then somehow came upon the gelatin in these sweets and it worked without having those terrible effects on the body or at least less terrible effects. Well, this is great. Yeah, and the, the tests did show that these sensors still worked in their more delicious form. Plus, they are able to measure as little as a single cell or just a few cells that are possibly a problem, which is pretty incredible. Awesome stuff. Yeah, so they uh, they are still trying to make these complex enough to react to chemicals, not just voltages. But And obviously, this has to go through a whole medical process. But once they've done this, I think it could open up all kinds of things when it comes to uh, detecting what's happening in the brain, in muscles, and even, as I said, single cells in your body. Wow, that is amazing. (laughs) So these are some of the things that are happening in the world that relate to science. And it just shows me once again how you can never really separate science and science. and politics or news stories because there's always something behind it there's always a question around why is this happening how does it work and that's exactly what we're here to do with you on the science inside so after the break we get into our main story specifically about the science inside cash in transit heists 
The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSN 88.1. Hello and welcome to The Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz and now we come to our main story. As you know, we are on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. If you want to tell us what you think about anything that we're discussing today, but now in particular, we go to a story by our uh, producer, Bridget LePere, around cash in transit heists. You probably know that there has been a spike recently, and so we thought we would go and find out a little bit about the science behind this. Have a listen. Cash and transit heists are the fastest growing forms of serious crimes in South Africa. So, it may come as a surprise that we are ranked third and not first on the list of countries with the most frequent CIT crimes. But SA tops the list as a country with the most violent. In 2016, a senior lecturer in the Department of Police Practice at UNISA, Dr. Henny Lochner, interviewed 21 incarcerated CIT robbers to cover how these crimes are done. What his study revealed is that all perpetrators started their criminal careers with petty crimes such as pickpocketing and then escalating to more serious offenses such as house robberies leading up to the most dangerous cash in transit heists. My study did not look on the reason why they're so violent, but we can speculate. The first statement was that Europe has got more cash and transit robberies. You know, stats do lie and you can manipulate stats, so I do not want to comment on that. But I know for a fact that Brazil is very, very close to us and their robberies are also extremely violent. I know that in Australia, the cash and transit stats it was 39 over a period of, uh, I think it was six years. And all those robberies, we call it strong arm robberies. And there was nobody got dead in any of those robberies. Why these people are so extremely violent? I think it's because of the progress in the crimes that they have committed. And then the status that you have within the criminal community if you had been found guilty on a serious violent crime. So these people are treated like kings or they are seen as the king in the correctional services because the cash and transit robber is the ultimate robber and the criminal in South Africa. Cash and transit crimes are not only the problem and responsibility of the police, government or businesses involved, but of all South Africans. Henny's study reveals who the other participants behind CIT crimes in the country are. In every cash and transit robbery, there's somebody in the criminal justice system involved. The people that have been mentioned the most involved are police officials. These people, they plan between 5 to 70 months before they rob a cash and transit vehicle. And I'm building with an article without knowing what they are doing. They are using a well-known method to gather information on how to execute their robberies. That specific method is being used by police organizations all over the world to gather information on organized crime criminals. Now the criminals are using their own system to gather information. That's why they are so successful. What is most concerning about CIT crimes is the apparent inefficiency to apprehend criminals and the inability of the criminal justice system to stop them. National Police Commissioner Kekla Sitole and Police Minister Bekitele announced a new plan to fight all crime threats, including cash in transit robberies. The conviction rate, according to the Institute of Security Studies, stands at 11% when dealing with violent crimes, whilst the bulk of crimes remain unsolved. The investigation of crime was based on one principle, and that principle is known as the Luekart principle. And basically it says when two objects came into contact with each other, the one will leave a trace on the other. For example, if somebody is breaking into your house, he or she will left 
the fingerprint or maybe shared button on the crime scene, which you can trace back to it. The next principle, which is now acknowledged, is the Lochner principle, which says you do not have to make physical contact anymore. Your cell phone leaves a mark on the crime scene, and you'll have to use the technology to retrieve the information. You can't commit organized crime without using a cell phone or any electronic device. In the following, security intelligence specialist and founder of Zero Foundation Africa, Benedict Weaver, explains how cell phone technology can be used to trace a criminal to the crime scene. If you happen to have a good-hearted citizen with good intentions rings through and says, this individual using this number, I believe, is implicated in cash and transit heights. What would then happen is that number would then be flagged, and I'm not in public air going through the mechanisms of how this is done. Communications between that number and other people using, for example, the triangulation system of the cell phone towers that are used, as well as using an abbreviated form of an itemized billing, they will then be able to determine that phone rang this other number. You'll be able to identify to whom that number belonged, and perhaps you can ring fence it to identify where that number is actually geographically situated when it was answered. So this now tells you suspect A with that number contacted suspect B on that number, and suspect B was, for example, up by Krugersdorp. You then determine with suspect B, whom do they communicate with? Oh, other people within Krugersdorp. That now gives an understanding of possibly from the information given to the police or to whomever, reference a number and an individual. They are now able to trace and track and more specifically give a plan in place as to who is being contacted by that suspect's number and then build up a profile that way. Henny states that criminals do already have the information and all that the companies need to do is to constantly beef up their security intelligence. It's a fact that certain cash and transit companies are using cell phone technology to open vaults and close vaults. That's a fact. The criminals know that. I think they have to beef up the protection of it and it's a fact that Certain companies' vehicles are being tracked by cell phone technology on a regular basis. They can use cameras on the side of the vehicle. You can take pictures from. Now you must remember, if you put that into the security system as a catch and transit vehicle, these people, they will know that and they will first go for these things and they will act more violent because they're going to ask the people, where's this thing hide? And if you do not respond, you will be shot. In the investigation of cash and transit robbery using cell phone technology, I'm just going to tell you this. You can control who you are going to phone, but you can never control who is going to phone you. And that will always leave a mark. And you may have wondered why even with all the technology, why CIT crimes are still happening and how the technology actually works. Here, Benedict explains why opening and closing of vaults remotely is easy to bypass and how one can increase the security of this technology. More and more vehicles are now becoming interconnected with regards to either GPRS or GSM, in other words, using cell phone technology, so that you as the driver can utilize functionalities like GPS and so on on your phone in the vehicle. In other words, the vehicle becomes an extension of the phone. For example, one system they are considering doing now is utilizing your SIM card in the dashboard of the vehicle. So now your vehicle becomes effectively a mobile phone. Given that circumstance and that type of vehicle, in other words, one that is effectively GSM enabled, you are now undoubtedly able to manipulate your own phone to trick the phone or the SIM card in that vehicle and trick it in such a way that that vehicle's control mechanism is now in your control. Certain vehicles are now being enabled by the vehicle manufacturers and it's driven by consumer demand. 
to make those vehicles more GSM friendly. Same processes involved. I mean, there are different security applications, obviously, if they're used. Based on our experience, often the security of the systems has to be set up by the user in the same way as you're entrusted with a PC at the office or whatever it might be, and you are entrusted with securing that access by using a password. If you don't use a password, anyone can break into your PC. It doesn't require any technical hacking skills. So likewise, with the mobile phone applications for opening and closing safes, opening and closing garages, opening and closing vehicles, the security of the system rests with the user. They have to configure it to ensure that someone else can't come along and either deliberately or inadvertently access that system. You may also remember a time when ink dye technology was used to deter criminals from blasting ATMs or cashing transit vans with explosives. Is the technology still in use? And if so, what happens to the damaged money? Henny has more. These people fled. So what they do is they watch the money. They are using methods and techniques to get rid of the, of the stain. And the vast becomes, after it's been cleaned, then they go to a shabina and then they, they buy a bottle of beer with the 200 notes. It has been cleaned from the dye and then the 200 notes in the system. You can refer to that as money laundering. You, you must remember, they must get rid of the money. And the biggest culprit in washing money is second-hand dealerships. These people do not ask where the money is coming from. And I've asked them in the interviews, what would you suggest to prevent these things? And I said, you must get people to investigate these second-hand car dealerships. A few weeks back, thousands of FEDUSA and Motor Transport Workers Union affiliated security workers marched to the office of the Houting Community Safety, demanding the government to take decisive steps in responding to the high tide of cash in transit heists nationally. Workers accused government of being too slow in their reaction to the increased attacks on cash solutions vehicles. Between January and May, 74 cash in transit robberies were reported across Gauteng and the police have only made 28 arrests in only 11 cases so far. It is clear that all role players such as the judiciary, cash solutions businesses, the police and civil society need to make a collaborative effort and jointly fight the scourge against cash in transit heists. That was a, a story done by our producer, Bridget LaPere, all about the cash and transit heists, what's behind it, and some of the tech and the science around both what the criminals are using and the investigators. Of course, there's a lot more there that not everybody is willing to share or that we don't yet know, but it does give you a little bit of an insight into exactly what happens when these kind of criminal activities happen in Gauteng and South Africa. Stay with us on the Science Inside. Next up, it is Unscience. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. We always take a little bit of a break in the middle of the show to look at something that's a little bit strange. Just just weird or wonderful when it comes to research and research studies that on the face of it seem a little bit funny but usually have a very serious um, motivation behind them. We like to call it unscience and today's unscience was produced by myself and comes from researchers Erin O'Dowd and Thomas Pollitt at Northumbria University in the UK. The music is something elated by Broke for Free and we're going to get into it right now. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. And as always, I'm here with my producer, Bridget LePere, to chat about this. And I want to tell you, Bridget, you know the the rules of the road, right? You know exactly how to stay safe. True, I do. You just look left and then right and then left again. Then you do you. (laughs) (laughs) And you cross the road. That's the big one, right? And you should always use the pedestrian crossing. But let's be honest, how many of us do really use it like all the time? Do you, Bridget? Well, I use my discretion. 
<laughs> that is a very, very politically correct way of saying it. I've got to say, I very rarely actually use um, use the crossings unless I'm already there. But just in Joburg, it's it's such a mess everywhere you are. If you're in the inner city, you might as well, you know, just grab your opportunity. So I am maybe not the best role model when it comes to this. But the truth is that in South African law, like in many countries, jaywalking in a lot of cases is technically illegal. And when enforced can mean that you are arrested and asked to pay an admission of guilt fine. There have been people that have had to do this because they jaywalked specifically on highways where where many pedestrian accidents also happen. So it can be very serious, of course. But still, so many of us do it. Jaywalking is often just a shorter route or you see a chance, you cross that street, you just do it. Sure, Elna, that's what we all do, but I don't think that's what everybody else does. Some people are more safety conscious with these things than others. Maybe not Maybe not you or me, not but me. other people. <laughs> well, that's exactly what today's weird research is asking. Does the amount of risk you're willing to take relate to who you are, specifically whether you're male or female? Why gender, though? Why not like where you live or anything like that? Yeah, like or your, or your background or something. Well, actually, this all comes back to evolutionary psychologists who have previously found that there does seem to be some marked difference in how men and women have evolved around whether they're likely to take a risk or a chance. So that obviously applies in all kinds of different scenarios that have been researched, like um, where you spend your money or how you deal with uh, you know, excitement or those kind of risks. But these researchers decided to take it out into the cutthroat world of street traffic. They had a look at over 500 people walking into a train station in a big city and checked whether they were using the pedestrian crossing or a shorter but riskier route across the street. And what happened? Well, just as they had predicted, men were significantly more likely to take the risky route while women were nicely using the pedestrian crossing. (laughs) That's very strange. So it's evolution where I walk across the road. (laughs) Well, I'm not entirely convinced yet, I do have to tell you, because this particular study was a little bit small for my liking. It was just in one place at peak times. That doesn't seem quite big enough for me. And even they admit in the paper that it's possible that this has more to do with following the expected norms so what will people think of me that kind of thing what do i always do here's the pedestrian crossing let let me just use it whether uh, you know whether that is what men and women are different on instead of you are purposefully doing something risky and like i'm going to cross the street because i am an adventurous person so even they are questioning this but Here's what's really interesting to me. Um, It's very much in line with other kinds of research, this little study, and not just in pedestrians. Other work has shown that men are less likely to wear a seatbelt, more likely to run red lights, and unfortunately, as a consequence, also to be involved in car accidents. Even while cycling, there are gender differences in who is taking risks that could have very serious consequences. Obviously, we're joking about running across the road when it's safe, but we have to we have to be serious here. A lot of people die on our roads. True. And wow, I'm amazed that you were able to put this together. And it's quite a lot. Perhaps a good reminder, good reminder for for all of us to check on our behavior yeah whether you're male or female this is a good this is a good time to to say hey where am i crossing the road and i'm preaching to the choir here if you see me tomorrow on the streets of joburg you can you can shout at me and say hey alna i see you i see where the crosswalk is (laughs) but i also can't stop imaging how this study was done were the researchers sitting somewhere in a bush counting all of the people like one, two, three, four? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I find really funny about the study because when you read it, they don't really explain where the researchers are. So were they like hiding behind a street sign? I'm, 
It just seems like a very, very funny thing. Or they did this behind a lab table or something. (laughs) They just set up a table and sort of looked at people. Oh, sometimes science is quite funny, but also, as we've shown, related to very serious things. That was our unusual and likely unscience for the week. Next up, we get into more really interesting things, specifically around whether polygraphy is real. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Hello and welcome back. My name is Alna Schutz. We are trying something new on the show with these last 20 minutes and I'm very excited about it. What we're going to do is look at a question and try to hear the different sides of science around it. You can imagine it a little bit like a mythbuster or a fact check, but even with science, it is often not clear cut it's not just a case of this is the answer here you go because there are very different people involved there are different research studies and as you can look at the waters they can become more and more murky but i promise you you and i will learn something along the way and maybe our eyes will be opened about something we had seen as completely straightforward before and that's exactly the case with today's story because earlier in the show we were speaking about cash in transit heists and while you and i may not necessarily be hardened criminals we all have some things we've done wrong and especially lied about whether it's something small or big now imagine somebody would be able to look at you and know exactly what you've done in a movie this is of course the scene where you're dragged into a small dark room and asked to take a lie detector test but are those really accurate (laughs) can they catch you out or can you fake them you may not know this but polygraphy tests or polygraph tests sometimes called deception detectors are used in South Africa. They are used in criminal scenarios and also employment situations. So maybe to suss out who you are or if you've got something to hide. Take Neil Fisser, for instance. He works in retail and he's had to do quite a few of these. I've done polygraphs several times, actually. I used to work for a company and they did polygraphs on a regular. I probably did about 10 polygraph tests while I was at the company, as well as... In the last uh, couple of months, I also did a polygraph for my new job. Basically, the process is they make you fill out a form regarding, like, if you've ever done drugs and all that. Then you sit down in the polygraph, you have to sit dead still. Then they start the polygraph and they probably do questions that the company asks them to do. Like, they ask certain questions like, have you ever stolen before? Um, obviously, I, I work in retail, so they ask stuff like, have you ever stolen before? Have you ever planned on stealing with a group of people that work with you? Just so that the, the employer knows that you are an honest person and that you're telling the truth. So yeah, it's a very sensitive thing, a very tough thing to do. To be honest, I don't think it's legit because the amount of times I've done poly where like, if you move, you have to sit dead still. So if you make a, a slight movement or a sudden movement, the polygraph machine picks it up then they have to ask the question over and over again so i don't think it's completely legit neil isn't too convinced but what do the experts or people on both sides of this debate say let's start with the pros Clifton Katia is from the South African Polygraph Academy. He trains polygraph examiners and he's been in the industry since the mid 80s and absolutely supports the science of how these tests work. It's psychophysiological because the lying is a neurological process, that's the psycho, and the resultant behavior from that, that resulting from that is physiological. Like a, a polygraph will measure changes in blood volume, not blood pressure per se. It will measure endocrinal sweating, which is... Um, results from the stress of lying, your body temperature increases, your core temperature increases slightly, so the body pushes up endocrinal sweating called palmar sweating. Obviously, the where we measure it is on the hands, on the fingertip, and then also importantly, it measures changes in respiration, inspiration and expiration ratios. Uh, when you're normally breathing normally, 
your lungs are extracting roughly 5% of oxygen from every lungful. And when the fight or flight effect kicks in, i.e. when you're lying, your respiration ratio slows down so that your lungs can extract more oxygen from every lungful because your body is diverting blood to the major muscle groups and it needs oxygen. So the polygraph measures those three basic parameters, expiration, blood volume, and endocrinal sweating. There's also voice stress analysis. Hmm. Things go wrong even on live radio. I'm so sorry. There is also voice stress analysis. It's another big tool that uses software to detect micro tremors in our voices. Clifton says these changes, if you are deceiving, are happening without you being able to control it. These tests do cater, however, for anxiety and stress, and there's various control questions done. So if you are innocent and you get a little bit nervous, that's okay. Clifton makes it very clear that it does rely also on the examiner and his skill. It's not a magical machine anyone could use. It's like anything. You get good doctors and bad doctors. You get good drivers and bad drivers. You get good examiners and bad examiners. The training is intense um, because they try and eliminate bad examiners. And usually when people come out of the training, they are quite competent. But having said that, um, there are something like 80 white papers or research projects that have been conducted over many decades that prove conclusively that polygraph testing does work. It is reliable. If it's used the right way, if the person administering the test is trained and puts his training into practice, doesn't start doing his own thing, then the results are very reliable, up to 99.4% reliability. This is a number that gets quoted quite regularly by polygraph examiners, and it sounds great. It sounds like something you can trust, but... Not everyone agrees. In fact, one organization internationally is very strong in speaking out against this. I chatted uh, on Skype to George Mashke, who is the co-founder of antipolygraph.org. It's a non-profit website that speaks out against polygraphs and basically wants them to not be misused or used at all. What you need to understand uh, to begin with is that the techniques used by polygraph operators were not developed by scientists. They were developed by interrogators. The uh, early uh, originator of lie detector testing was named uh, Leonard Keeler. Uh, He was an interrogator, not a scientist. The actual inventor of the instrument was uh, a guy named John Larson. He was a medical student at the University of California at Berkeley, but he came to regret having anything to do with lie detectors uh, later in life and and spoke against uh, practice. And the polygraph techniques that are in use today have not been subjected to double-blind field testing. So, and they have multiple uncontrolled and in fact uncontrollable variables that can influence outcomes. So it's, it's not even a scientific procedure where experimentation could give you a meaningful indication of of its accuracy it's it's more of a structured interview with a polygraph instrument as a prop than uh than a scientific test for truth or uh, lies i have to give it to george the history doesn't exactly give me confidence in the technology at least the older ones and the core issue though at least the way I see it, is not whether polygraphs pick up certain signals from your body, but whether those signals are directly linked to deception or not. As mentioned earlier, Clifton said, these tests calculate stress and other factors in, and that what is left is basically your flight or fight response reacting when you know you aren't telling the full truth. George believes, however, on this, it's a definite no, and says there's not been any reliable research to back this. In fact, the uh, United States uh, National Research Council, which is an arm of the National Academy of Sciences, 
conducted a thorough review of the scientific evidence on the polygraph around 2001-2002. And they concluded that the scientific basis for the polygraph is quite weak. The reason it's everywhere that it's uh, used is because even though it has no scientific basis, with people who don't understand that it's junk science, it can be useful for getting admissions. So someone is uh, led to believe that this scientific machine has caught them in a lie. They'll often think that, well, the best thing for me to do is come clean because they know I'm, I'm lying. And so you get uh, confessions or admissions. Unfortunately, um, under interrogation, sometimes even truthful people will make a false confession, thinking that it's the only way for them to escape an impossible situation. These self-confessions do happen, sometimes with terrible consequences. Of course, people on the pro-polygraph side see it as a good thing that people have a chance to confess to knowing something before they even start the test. And that often acts as a way to bring out the truth um, before the test has even started. Lastly, let's look at something else around this. A big contention around polygraphy is that people like George say, hey, it's easy enough to fake. And ways you can augment your reactions uh, include doing mental arithmetic, one technique that's been shown to be effective in peer-reviewed research is to pick a number, uh, say, above 700 and count backwards in your head by sevens as fast as you can. Or you can bite on the side of your tongue, he says, during the control questions like, have you ever lied? They're assuming that everybody is going to deceive that question to a certain degree. That now means that it'll change your body's reaction and with it the comparison to the more specific answers like, did you rob the bank? But let's go back to Clifton, our pro-polygrapher on that. Now it's all very well, you say you can go on the internet and download a booklet and learn how to cheat the polygraph. Try it. It's all very well when, you, when, when you're sitting in your office, at, you know, you're sitting at home and and you're reading how to cheat the polygraph, it's very different when you're actually in there with the examiner. Um, I would like to say that um, it ain't going to happen. Lots of confidence there from him. He even said to me that trained polygraph examiners wouldn't be able to fake tests themselves if they were asked, even if they tried. And he says they're trained in countermeasures and regularly update their knowledge on that to make sure they're noticing those countermeasures. So there you go. We've heard a little from both sides, but do polygraphs or deception tests work or not? It remains controversial, to be honest with you. And if you dig into some of the research on this, it seems like there's an article against every article that you read before that. And I can not, unfortunately, tell you yes or no 100%, because as we've seen, there are two sides of this story. But I personally do think this. I think that these tests pick up on some physical signals of stress and anxiety, definitely. And these can be helpful in finding someone who has done something wrong. But I'm not entirely convinced that these signals are a surefire scientific sign of lying or full-on deception. And that means that you're opening the door to a possibility that you might be incriminating people who are innocent or not catching people who are guilty. On the side of taking fake tests, it seems like something you can learn. I've heard a lot of stories of people who have just to control your body to a certain degree. But I've got to give it to Clifton's point about good examiners knowing that you might want to do that if the stakes are high and that they are also trying to counteract that and try to pick up on the fact that you're doing it. So I hope that you have learned something more about polygraph tests, how they work, and that it's not as simple as a yes or a no, a science or a fiction, a scam or a truth. Even with science, it's not always an easy answer. But it does make me a little bit more cautious to strap in and start spilling my guts to someone. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. 
You have been listening to The Science Inside and today we've spoken about everything from the tech behind cash and transit heists to safely crossing a pedestrian crossing to lastly polygraph tests and are they really legit or not? I now have Anthony Teixeira with me who will be taking you on to Sports Hub after this. But what do you think, Anthony? Um, look, I'm sort of skeptical. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to take one because I feel like there's some sort of truth or we believe that there's a truth to it. I also definitely agree agree with you that there's strength in the fact that they could know that I'm lying. Yeah. And that's probably going to make me react stronger or just straight out confess. But also it sort of talks to the way that we watch television. A polygraph test is, we know that it doesn't, it's not 100% in court, but it still happens all the time in those crime shows. So, yeah. And no. ev- <laughs> everything you see on TV is real. That is very true. <laughs> you can't say stuff like that on a science show, Anthony. No. But you can tell us what's on the sport hub. Well, today we're actually going to digest what happened this past weekend on Saturday. Springboks coming up a little short against England. And then we look at what's happening at the World Cup. Russia, Uruguay through to the round of 16, officially confirmed. Top of Group A is Uruguay, Russia second. And we're going to have a quick look at uh, the rest of the matches for the week exciting stuff especially with it being world cup time there's always something to discuss and also your german side got a win at the weekend hey, Alma. Hey. Hey, hey i'm very excited about that even though i am more on the science side than the sports and <laughs> <laughs> then the sports conviction let's be honest that will be sports hub right after this with anthony anthony teixeira and the team but you have been listening to the science inside with myself alna schutz a big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today including henny lochner benedict weaver george mashke neil fisser and clifton kutzia today our team behind the scenes is production by bridget Le Pair and the podcast is vids.journalism.coza forward slash science and is also on iTunes. On social media, the science inside is under the Vow FM brand on Facebook and Twitter. My name, as I said, is Alna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Come back, be with us again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.